0: This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalized website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 one for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This live episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day is sponsored by publishers Penguin Life. Launched in 2016, Penguin Life publishes books by experts who share a passion for living well. Books such as The Stress Solution by Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, Ruby Wax's How to Be Human, Dr. Megan Rossi's Eat Yourself Healthy, published in September, and of course, Philippa Perry's The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read. Penguin Life has a vision to make the world a better place with real, credible advice that will improve the lives of its readers for many years to come. Thank you very much to Penguin Life. So hello and welcome to this very special live recording of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. We're here in Foyle's bookshop in Charing Cross Road, London, which is quite possibly my favourite bookshop ever since they did a spectacular window display for the publication of How to Fail. Never let it be said that I'm not easily won over by flattery. Tonight we're doing something slightly different with the podcast and welcoming two fantastic authors on stage to discuss How to Fail at families. Philippa Perry is a psychotherapist and Red Magazine's resident agony aunt whose most recent non-fiction work, The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Will Be Glad That You Did, was a number one Sunday Times bestseller. Despite not being a parent myself, I found it enlightening and reassuring and it bears the notable distinction of being one of the only books I've ever read that made me cry on the tube in a good way. (laughs) Sadie Jones is, in my opinion, one of our greatest living novelists. Her first novel, The Outcast, won a Costa Award in 2008. Her latest book, The Snakes, is a riveting and chilling account of the corrosive effects of money, power, and parenthood. Trust me, once you've read it, you will never forget the ending. I cannot think of two better qualified guests to join me to talk about How to Fail at families. Please welcome Philippa Perry and Sadie Jones. start by asking you both actually the same question because I know that you come at families from different places. Philippa you're a psychotherapist and you write non-fiction but what drew you both to exploring the family unit in the first place? Philippa can I start with you? You
1: can. I suppose it was my
0: disaster of a family of origin.
1: (laughs) Which from the outside would not look like a disaster, would look like a very secure, happy family unit. But of course, it had its fair share of dysfunction and corrosive effects and ways of, instead of fertilising the flowers of the children, kind of
0: putting a lot of weeds around them so they had to struggle for light and air. And do you think from the clients that you've seen and from the people who write to you in Red magazine, do you feel that most people's issues start with the family? I think most people's issues
1: start with either being able to make relationships or getting stuck and failing in some way in how they make relationships. Because we are pack animals and we need relationships like we need food. And if we somehow seem to get them wrong a lot of the time, then we get into trouble and then we have problems. We might not realise that our
0: problems are relationship-based, but they usually are.
2: <laughs>
0: and Sadie, what about you? What, what attracted you to the very dysfunctional
2: family that you talk about in The Snakes? Well, I, I didn't set out to write a book about family. I set out to write a, a political book and a, a morality tale. But the best way to do that, um, to write about this very sick and dysfunctional society that I wanted to tell was to really, to, to make it small and make the family a really a metaphor mm. for the society that I'm describing. So the family unit, uh, the patriarch who is, you know, a fairly corrupt creature, the mother who is needy and controlling, the daughter who's struggling to be good in, in an extremely toxic situation... Mm as a what well, you were talking about a springboard into life you know she's having a desperately trying to separate herself from that and i found myself writing a domestic story or a family story because that was how to how to make it intimate and how to make it as intense and painful as it needed to be and i noticed that because we've spoken in the past about how female authors when they
0: write about families are often pigeonholed as quote-unquote, domestic writers, whereas someone like Jonathan Franzen can do it and it's suddenly a State of the Nation novel. <laughs> has that been something that you personally have felt when you've been writing?
2: It's something I'm, I'm very aware of as a reader. Mm. And I think with this book particularly because I wanted it to have scale and it came you know, from a tra- the tradition of Greek tragedy or um, it has a lot of those sort of big base notes to it, I was less anxious about this being seen as a domestic story because you know everybody's in a family. You know, Oedipus. (laughs) Yeah. It was a consideration, it is a consideration. I was more concerned with keeping it intimate than worrying about it being too intimate.
0: And can I ask you both what your relationship is with failure more generally? So Philippa, are you Scared of failure or have you learnt to embrace it as something that builds up a kind of emotional resilience? I've
1: certainly got used to it. (laughs) I think uh, you can't do anything without failing. If you go on a walk you'll go up a wrong way and think oh let me look at the map, oh no I've gone wrong and you'll turn around and you'll find the way to go. I think life is a, I call it in my book, rupture and repair. We make mistakes we go oops and then we try and correct the mistake and then we make another mistake and even though it's a series of mistakes we sort of get there in the end
0: and mistakes are failures are they not they are this is so speaking my language rupture and repair and I think what you make clear in your book which is such a fantastic read is that it's never too late to repair a rupture
1: Well, it's never too late to attempt to repair a rupture. I mean, if you've been stabbed, it's sort of like, oh, let me pull that knife out. Whoops, let me sew that up. You know, there's still some damage being done. But saying I shouldn't have done that, rather than that was your fault that you got stabbed, Mm. even that can help a bit. God, it just reminds me of Love Island. I don't
0: remember, I don't know how many of you are watching Love Island. Love Island sounds better this year, I must watch. <laughs> There's a whole thing at the moment in Love Island where a man has broken up with a woman, Michael's broken up with Amber, but he's blaming her for, for having the temerity to like make him break up with her. And it's it's a classic distraction technique. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> Sadie, what about you? Because you said to you said to me in an email this tremendously funny thing that. For years, when you Googled your name, the first article that came up was Sadie Jones and 15 years' worth of failure. <laughs> yeah.
2: And the next one was Sadie Jones' 18-year-old porn star. It's a porn star called there Sadie Jones. There was this Jones? porn star. So... You've had a very varied career. <laughs> I had an, um, well, my main ambition as a writer was to bump that Sadie Jones off the, off the sort of page one of Google. Yeah, because my first book was published when I was 40. So I had been trying to be a screenwriter, being an unproduced screenwriter from when I was 20. And I'd met my husband and had children, but I'd been toiling away and going through agents and going through things nearly being made and the relationship with failure, the intimacy, intimate relationship with failure. So when I did get published and I got, and that book did incredibly well and it had a lot of luck, so the, what are they going to interview you about? Oh, you, you know, housewife writes book. And it was, I was described as a housewife in one Bye. of the interviews, which is nice. Um, <laughs> but the headline was Sadie Jones on her 15 years of failure. And that, the book did well, so that article had a lot, and there it was, and it was just there for the next 10 years. Did you feel like a failure during those years? Yes. Comple- yeah, completely. It's, trying to reframe that what this discussion trying to say well that's you know, we all fear falling over we all fear pain we all want to be loved we want to be accepted so it's it's a horrible thing to be continually you know unproven and to have that to you it's very very easy to go oh well here i go again you know and I'm a failure, and and that becomes this horrible, comfortable, negative, reinforced thing where it's actually, when I did become very successful very suddenly, which then you find out is an up and down process, and failure comes back a lot, but that moment of suddenly being successful was the most uncomfortable I'd been in my adult life. I didn't know what to do with it because I was very used to armoring myself and battling and girding and sitting down at the desk again but I wasn't used to didn't you do well and I find that really really hard. How do you find it now when people say didn't you do
0: well? Awful. (laughs) (laughs) So much better
2: than than the
0: other thing. And Philippa you were saying that your first book you wrote when you were 51 is that right? Yes. How wonderful I think that's so good for people to hear that Actually, I think a lot of people who come on the podcast talk about feeling lost in their 20s and that they don't feel that they're nailing their career in quite the right way and everyone else seems to have a sort of certain path. But actually, I think what this shows is that it can take you a while to accumulate the necessary wisdom and experience to write the thing that you want to write.
1: Yeah, because when I was in my 20s anyway, I sort of didn't know how it was going to all turn out. So that made it very difficult to write a book or to imagine what an ending would look like Mm. having said that some people in their 20s write amazing books so I'm not saying it's a rule it was just a rule for me because I was a bit backward and behind
0: and what about managing failure in terms of writing the book itself so I met Sadie when I interviewed her for your third novel I think it was And I remember you telling me this brilliant phrase that I use a lot, which is that as a writer, you set out to construct a beautiful cathedral. And by the end of your first draft, you've got a perfectly serviceable garden shed. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to ask both of you about your failure in terms of the writing process and how you manage your expectations. Sadie, do you still feel you're building garden sheds? Uh,
2: Yes, I think there's this... as As a novelist, you... Whether or not you plan ahead, there are some people who just make it up as they go. There are people who plan ahead and have this perfect notion of the thing they're going to make. And it's, before there's a word on the page, it's perfect. It's beautiful. And it's the platonic version. And then the moment there's a first sentence, it's a, you know, it's a sentence. What are you going to use? Then you've got a book. So that's an ongoing thing. And I think the more... I write, or the more books I write, the more part of the job is silencing the inner critic and taking the risk. Because you have the editing voice and the critic voice who's going, you know, that's OK. That's maybe a B plus, but you could do better. You're not as excited as you were about it yesterday. Where when you do it first, it's all terrifying. It's all exciting. So it's keeping her quiet. Mm. And that is basically a fear of failure, that voice. And taking the risk on the page. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it?
0: fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down.
1: So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me
0: on Wildcard, wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Do you have an inner critic, Philippo when you're writing?
1: Oh, dear. I've got a football team of them. (laughs) Um, Awful, awful. I've actually got a bit in my book about how to calm your inner critic. I should really read it. (laughs) (laughs) Um... I have to fight. It almost feels like a physical fight to keep going. You talked about a first sentence. I have got so many first sentences. I've got a book of first sentences. It's the second sentence and the one after that I find really difficult. I do find it really difficult. I feel a bit like that sketch that Paul Whitehouse did. It's the
2: hardest job in the world. (laughs) Do you write the first sentence first?
1: Well, I write a first sentence first, but it won't be the one that is
0: the first sentence.
2: In your novels,
0: do you write your first sentence first? Sometimes, but more often I go back and rewrite the entire first chapter, probably. Because once you know where the story's gone... I can never get it's a truth universally acknowledged out of my head. I mean, that's just... (laughs) I
1: can't... Top that, it's so annoying. Um,
0: I can never get the every family, every, un- well, I can obviously get it out of my mind because I failed to remember it. There we go. The Tolstoy one. Yeah, that one. Yeah, every happy family is boring, essentially, I paraphrase. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's get on to, so you've both been kind enough to give me specific family-based failures. Philippa, I'd love to come to you on this one first, and it's about your relationship with your father. I you never think. managed to impress him I never managed to actually
1: influence him about anything at all. He was a real proper grown-up in the world and knew absolutely everything about everything. And I also had a view on the world and I would have absolutely loved it if I could have influenced him about one thing, even if it was as insignificant as who I was. I'm this person. No, I think you'll find you're that person. Oh. <laughs> so my relationship with my father, it only ever worked when we both agreed that that race at Aintree was brilliant or we both agreed on this television actor's good, this one isn't. Then those were moments of joy in meeting. But it was never that I managed to persuade him to my point of view or even that he could see that even if he kept his own point of view, mine was equally valid. I was never equally valid. And I always felt very less than. And I always looked up to him and would have wanted his good opinion or at least his apology right until the end. But I never got it. He's dead now. And he had a view of me that he liked to hold on to. And he was quite proud of that view of me, but I just didn't recognize who he was talking about. He was talking about his vision of me. I never felt seen by him. And I could never be seen by him. But having said that, it's probably why I write books, because I want to be seen. I want to be heard. And the book you wish your parents had read is largely about, will you please look at me, Dad? Just look at me once. Obviously, I don't write it like that, and it's a very grown-up book. <laughs> <laughs> but that may be, I'm just thinking about this on the spot now, that maybe what's underneath it is that I really wish he had known that he could be impacted by his kids. He could not lose his own vision of the world, but he could accept theirs, and it wouldn't have annihilated him.
0: And how much do you think that was as a result of your position in the family of being a younger sibling? Oh, he didn't listen to my sister either. We were equal in that,
1: <laughs> in that sort of like, you know, we're, we're, there we were, age 55 and 51. We're still referred to as the children, and were expected to have a child amount to contribute, which was nothing.
0: And where was your mother in all of this? Hello. (laughs) Hi.
2: Mm.
1: Lovely. Would you like some more?
2: Uh,
1: She was very nice.
0: (laughs) Do you think, knowing what you know now, and and, um, expressing what you've just expressed about, about the motivation for writing books... Would you have wanted to redraw your relationship with your father if you could, knowing that he had given you this drive?
1: I mean, yes, I would. I really would, it would have meant so much to me. Because as you said, I didn't write my first book till I was 51, if I had more confidence in myself as who I was, which I think I would have got if he'd said, you're all right, much earlier on, I think I could have been creative earlier. And what do you think that particular failure has taught you? Well, I certainly think it's inspired the book you wish your parents had read because I really wish he'd read that book and learnt that mutual impact, allowing someone to influence you, isn't a sign of weakness. I really would have liked him to know that. Mm. And I think that would have helped him in all his relationships as well. There's a dynamic I talk about in the book, which is doer and done to. Rather than a sort of equal when we, when we just have an interchange, there's like someone who just receives and someone who just tells it like it is or, or does stuff to you. And I think had he known about that dynamic and realised that he could step out of it and have a dialogue an exchange, all his relationships might have been a bit richer and the ones with his children as well. So I really wish you would read the book.
0: Yeah. My final question on this particular topic is, do you think that your experience with your father has made you into a better, more aware parent? I'm not sure about better.
1: No, I think because when you reinvent yourself as a parent, thinking, I'm not going to do that pattern, you've always got this sort of voice, the sort of fall back emergency mode that is like automatic, instinctual, because it was how you were brought up. And so I think that under stress, I fall back into being my father or my mother. Yeah, you'll be all right. Bless her. Bless them both, actually, because they both did as well as they could. I don't want to be angry with either of them. They did as they were done to. Women must be nice and accommodating at all times. Men must be in charge of everything and know everything. I mean, that was, that's the culture that they were brought up in, and they were doing their best with that. I don't want to blame them or be angry with them, and I, obviously the, the, the filial bond is there, and I love them very much, but we didn't like each other very much. And you
0: were trapped in your roles?
1: Yeah, very much trapped in the roles of child, father, mother, sister. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the question. No, you answered it. That's fine.
0: (laughs) Neither can I. (laughs) Um, Sadie, your failure in family is also to do with parenting, or rather, an attempt to pretend to be a specific kind of parent.
2: (laughs) It's the parenting, I think, is automatic failure anyway. I mean, I I think it just is. But I think we're three younger siblings, and I think that's an automatic position of failure anyway we can never catch up we can never catch up that's why we're desperate for everyone here to like us <laughs> please like us so yes I w- among my failings as a parent were that I having always been you know a slight outsider quite shy a bit of a loner the, you know the your basic writer character and didn't do very well at school and was never really a team player I took that into being a parent. I would be late at the school gates on purpose so that I didn't have to see the other mothers. And my mother would always say, when I was growing up, she'd go, I'm not a proper mother. I'm not one of those proper mothers. And I related to it, and I liked it, and I got it, but it was sort of reinforced our outsiderhood. I did the same thing, as you were saying. I did the same thing. i go, I'm not a proper mother. I'm not one of those... And I began to beat myself up about this to such a degree that the proper mothers were baking things and the proper mothers were turning up at, you know, on time and chatting and forming these great relationships and playing tennis with each other. I not know what they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of built up this thing. And my kids, when they were five and six, started at a school that was a new school that was just starting up. And they needed, a <laughs> they needed someone to run the Parents' Association. And I just thought, this is my chance. (laughs) I'm going to be a proper mother now. I can do this. I can say hi to people and not fall over, and no one's going to think I'm mad. I can cook, (laughs) which I really can't. I mean, I can cook, but I can't bake. (laughs) And I I really can't bake. And I would make these cakes of sort of dragons and caves and whatever but they'd be really not very cooked on the inside oh. and i was so frightened i was going to give all these kids salmonella <laughs> I, it was it was but i i forced myself with my very good friend amanda and we ran the, the parents association and we did you know the fundraising and the ringing people up and the you, know, you have to have the special numbers and who's on the top of the list and we at meetings and coffee and bringing things and, and trying to suppress your rage <laughs> when people come round and you've made tea and you've got tea okay. and you've made, baked the thing and they turn up going, oh no, I've got a skinny latte on the way. <laughs> and, oh, have you, got a, have you got any soy milk? Or just, And I was so angry all the time. And, but I was, I was fine, I did it. And it got to the end of the year and was shafted by someone who really wanted to do it. And I realised that I had not written a word. I hadn't been myself or written a word or had a thought. I'd been so busy squashing myself into this person. My children, they didn't notice. They had no idea. Mm. It was completely not for them, as it turned out. It was for
0: me. And it sounds again... I hated it. Yeah, it sounds like a very
2: stressful year. It's horrible.
0: (laughs) But it sounds again as if you were trying to cut off your edges and fit yourself into this allotted role and this space that as a woman you were meant to occupy. And be
2: acceptable. But it's very nerve-wracking. And just not being yourself is is not good. Being acceptable is a habit, though, isn't it? If we're in the habit of being accepted,
1: it's not something... We even teeter on the outside of. Mm. So I, too, have this thing about being acceptable, even though my baking is exemplary. (laughs) (laughs) And I would bake so many cakes for these occasions. And then I'd look at the career mums, of which I was not one at the time, and I'd feel terrible envy and less than. So I think the pattern is... Feeling less than, feeling inadequate, and it doesn't really matter what we're doing. We've just got that dynamic. At of least pattern. you could bake.
2: <laughs> you really need to hold on to that because I was, I was failing, failing, failing as a writer, you, and then you, I was making these. You were the president things. of the the, of the
0: parents association. I never reached those giddy heights.
2: No,
0: Guys, I've never done either. I'm not a good baker and I've never done the PTA, so I don't know where that leaves me. We're so (laughs) impressed. I think
2: you're okay. How
0: innate, then, is the desire to people-please in women? Do you think it is a gendered thing?
1: In me, it's shocking. I've never really got over it. I hear people... Uh, say, I don't care what people think. And I, people say it on Twitter, I don't care what anyone thinks. I so care what everybody thinks. Yeah. And I can't get out of that. And if I get, you know, 10 good reviews on, our, on Amazon and one four star one that goes, I liked it a bit, I go, oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: oh. yeah, <laughs> failure. <laughs> so, wait, for you, a four star review on Amazon isn't a good one? How dare you?
2: <laughs> How d- I wasn't oh, gonna say what I wouldn't do for a four-star review. Oh, <laughs>
0: um, we can have a great game of who's the worst now. What about, what about
2: you, Sadie? Do you think people-pleasing is uh, gendered? I assume it is, but maybe we just talk about it more. There are different ways of going about it, and they don't articulate it, but they must be the same. Well, we'd need to ask some. i'm I'm, I'm sure maybe in the q a get some nice men to confide they must i think that we have maybe it's putting on a costume more a different costume anyway of trying to be you know soothing and accommodating and all of those things
0: and how do you both deal as writers and feeling and creative people you you have to have a kind of if not a thin skin, a breathable skin. I describe it in How It's Fail as a bit like Gore-Tex. You've got to let some things in in order to have the creative impulse. But how do you protect yourselves against that kind of criticism or someone being nasty on Twitter? Do you have strategies, Philippa? No.
1: (laughs) I haven't really. I'm really good with the mute and the block buttons on Twitter. So any neggy stuff on Twitter at all, that is the last comment I'll see from them. And that makes me feel quite good because it's an act of aggression, muting or blocking. Mm. I realise blocking gives people a thrill, so I only mute, because blocking is like attention if they notice it. So I, I mute a lot on Twitter, and that makes me feel quite good. Another rule I've now got is don't look below the line. So don't read the reviews, just count them. Mm. And that has helped me a lot.
0: So did you have strategies?
2: I, yes, because I'm so bad, at, so sensitive and ridiculous. Yes, I haven't looked at Amazon for two books, I, not even once, and I'm really proud of that it. That is so impressive. Not even drunk, and not even, <laughs> not even late at night when I'm feeling quite good about myself. I haven't looked at all, and it's not that opinions, opinions matter a lot. I read the printed reviews, but it's just not worth it because I realise that you can't, I can't learn how to write better from looking at Amazon, or worse, Goodreads. It's just not, it's not helpful. I learn how to, how to suffer blows, but I'm pretty good at that anyway. Mm. So it's just, I just don't. I'm really disciplined about it. But I do think that, it, as you were saying, the writer's personality, we need to be sensitive. Mm. I think that's not to do with having a thick skin. I don't want to develop a thick skin, so I don't, that's, part, that's why I don't look. I think it's important to be as uncomfortable in life, in order to make stuff up, to be uncomfortable and to feel pain and all of those things. I just think that in terms of looking at reviews, it's not a helpful one. Can I ask you a bit
0: about the creation of fictional families? Because it isn't just the Adamson's in The Snakes that you have been drawn to. Every single one of your books has some incredibly riveting core of dysfunction to it and I wonder when you're writing fictional families do they seem as real to you as your own and do you disappear into this fictional world during the day
2: and then have to come back and bake badly (laughs) yes I hope to disappear into it the hard I'm working to be at the point where it's hard to break out of it And, I mean, the the dysfunction, I just assume everybody's like that. I I met a friend of mine, actually, a a good friend of mine's wife. I sort of said to her, well, we all come from, you know, a difficult family, or everybody has, and she said, no, no, I don't. I said, well, you must have, you know, an alcoholic in your family, or a depressive, or someone, you know, some, you know, some, you know, some bigamists. And she said, "No, nobody at all." I said, well, everyone woman a divorce, nice. so she got divorced in her family. There was nothing. Oh, I don't believe her. I, I don't mean, believe her." For like ten minutes, just quizzing. <laughs> I go, "Well, what about your cousins?" You know, so. <laughs> there was nothing. And she's a happy, sunny person, and her life is good. So,
0: should I make a novel? <laughs> <that>, um, no.
2: <laughs> she's the exception that proves the rule. I think that virtually everybody comes from. There's damage everywhere, and that doesn't mean broken. And it doesn't mean bad and it doesn't mean wrong, but it's, you know, we all have these cracks. Most of us have these cracks. I'm fascinated, Philippa, by the idea of
0: roles, the roles that are allotted to us. Not, not baked roles, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> the um, roles that are allotted to us within families and yeah. how pervasive they are.
1: Yeah. We tend to go, when we've got, like, three children, Jimmy's the, the joker. Catherine's the quiet, studious one, and Rocky's the baby, you know, and, which is great when, maybe when they're two, four, and six. When they're 22, 24, and 26, these roles can be very restricting if nobody manages to convince anyone else that they've changed and they're different. And I think it's a really bad idea to put a label, any label, even if it's a positive label, on a child because we're all organic and we all get impacted by other people all the time and other ideas and things and we change and we grow all the time and so to label someone as the quiet one went oh you gave a speech Mm. you shouldn't have done that that's not you that's what how people tend to react to people if they put a role on them so it it, it feels like quite constricting and it can be quite difficult to break out of we give ourselves roles as well we might call ourselves a failure so that when somebody says to us you've done really well you've written a bestseller you've written a book that was adapted into a drama you're brilliant we just don't have we haven't got any practice about how to take that in and then we get to things that if they're not familiar, they're wrong. We confuse familiar with being true and right because it feels so good. And that's what happens if we get given a role or we adopt a role and we think that's us. It really restricts us because a judgment or a role is like a full stop. There's nowhere to go after you've been given a role. After you've been told you're the quiet one, you feel like you're betraying everybody if you open your mouth. And so don't let's judge ourselves or each other and put ourselves into roles and say, oh, I'm this sort of person or he's that sort of person, because then we just get
0: stuck there. So that's so fascinating and I, I so a bit eloquent. Ranty. It was yeah. amazing. The Thank idea you. of a role being a full stop and therefore you can't continue to write your own sentence is phenomenal. But for instance, Christmas, which is a flashpoint Ooh, for so many <laughs> families, <laughs> How do you, what are your practical tips for... Australia's going, is nice.
1: Australia. <laughs> well, so if your family you live in Australia. So, so long <laughs> as you haven't got any family out there.
0: <laughs> but what, I mean, when you are going back home for Christmas, let's say, it's very difficult. And I speak from personal experience. It's so difficult to break out of the role that's been allotted to you. How do you do it?
1: Well, luckily, my role is cook. So I can just hide in the kitchen. Mm. Sorry, that's where I am, I'm just in the kitchen, that's what I'm doing. But even that is really restricted. I'm the cook, I'm cooking in the kitchen, that's me. It's like, no, I can watch television. I don't, no, can we have a ready meal? No. How do you do it? Well, you can't, because they're not going to listen. Sort of like, I know you think of me as this sort of person and everything, but actually, I've written a book... Oh, yes, everybody's writing a book these days, aren't they? <laughs> Somebody actually did say to me, said that to me and my family. when I, I wrote my first book and I was so proud. And I was still in the younger sister role then, so I was still going, look what I've done. And my older cousin said to me, yes, everybody's writing a book these days, aren't they? Why. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's very sad are you asking me for advice obviously I haven't obviously I haven't handled it very well I'm not there yet I think what we want to do is educate other people about ourselves but I think maybe it might be just better to role model learning about them and what do you mean by that give up
0: no you don't you don't mean that what do you actually mean
1: No, I I do think if you've tried to show your family who you are and they're still reflecting back to you a person you don't recognise, who they insist is you, it's a good idea not to keep knocking, not to keep wanting that approval because it looks like you aren't going to get it. So it might be a better idea to switch the focus onto tell me about your year.
2: Mm.
0: And to remain
1: stable in your own power. Stable in your own power, and I find Facebook's quite handy. How's yeah. your Christmas been? Oh, my God, look, at you, look where you're sleeping tonight,
0: underneath the gym machine. You know, <laughs> those, those things are great. Sadie, which fictional family, either one that you've written or one that you've read, has stayed with you the
2: most, do you think? Oh, Salinger's, Salinger's family, the Franny and Zooey family, huh. the Glass family. I just love them. What about them? I've never read
0: that book. Oh, God, it's
2: wonderful. I think where I'm trying to now remember exactly, they're a family of, I can't remember how many siblings there's, Franny and Zoe. and there's two others, I think, the older one. Anyway, they were a family of child geniuses who were on a TV show. And they're a family of, of New York intellectuals who are on this TV show and the, but that's not the book that's just their sort of backs sort of lurking in the background I haven't read it for a while and there are people in the audience going what the hell are you talking about <laughs> but as I recall it, it's a book which is basically a conversation between Franny and Zoe and she's come back from college and she's lying in the bath smoking and you get everything about that and he also wrote about that family in other books mm-hmm. they're wonderfully sexually dysfunctional, they're neurotic they're smart, they have this endless quipping and I just love them what's it like for your real life family
0: reading your books about fictional families who behave badly to each other so when I so when I wrote my first novel yeah paper stone which is also about dysfunctional family and I remember my mother reading it for the first time and going very very pale and very very quiet (laughs) I was like did you what did you think and her first words were are you very very dark She was so worried. She was just very worried that I was incredibly twisted. Well, that's really
2: sweet. It was very sweet. I thought you were going to
0: say, is that me? No, no. She didn't do that. She didn't do that. Although I did dedicate it to my parents saying they're nothing like the parents in the book because I felt that was important. (laughs) But how do you... Because I I think sometimes it's quite difficult for people who know you and love you to read your fictional creations.
2: I can safely say... And my family are wonderful. My parents are wonderful. They've never said... And, that you know, there's there's... Quite a lot of dark stuff. They seem entirely unsurprised. <laughs> They're just like, oh, yeah, you know, the self-harm, the alcoholism, the yeah, of death. Yeah. It just hasn't crossed their minds, I think, either to ask or, or maybe it just always shone off me. Mm. I don't know. Well, we've spoken about how to fail at families, but I wonder if
0: y- you both have successes that you can own. Where, like, do you, how do you <laughs> feel that... There's something that you've done well within your family unit. Philippa is making delightful faces and I'm worried to come to you first. But I feel from reading your book that you um, are a very good mother and you've given space to your daughter to be able to express how she's feeling at every single juncture. I know it's a hard thing to say, but do you think you've been a good parent? I don't really like adjectives good and bad when it comes to parents because we're talking
1: about a relationship relationship. So you don't think I don't think after this encounter that we've had tonight and our little friendlinesses in the green room, do you think I was a good person with 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 Elizabeth and Sadie? You know, I don't mm. these are relationships. What we have with our children is relationships and I don't think it's very helpful to evaluate ourselves in terms of good and bad. Sometimes Me and my daughter manage to resonate with each other and we're on the same page and we get each other. And sometimes we miss. And I don't think we're bad when we're missing. We're trying and failing. But when we fail, we try again and then hopefully we get back on the same page again. So the idea of being good or bad, I don't like the question.
0: Well, I love that you said that, I, I, and I, I do like the answer. I mean, do, and do you think the same of other relationships? That, For instance, marriages, people are often talking about good or unhappy marriages. Do you think the same thing that you can't evaluate? I think
1: being a good wife doesn't sound much fun. To... Mm.
0: <laughs>
1: what, you clear up all the wee round the bottom of the loo and you never say anything? Is that what a good wife is? It doesn't sound much fun. Mm. So I don't think we should be so wrapped up in being good or bad. I think we should be ourselves and be open and be open to the other person and be open to be impacted by them and hopefully they're also, therefore, take on us as well. I think that's the best we can hope
0: for. Sadie, do you think you've been a good parent? No, I'm joking, that's not the question. (laughs) Is there anything within your family life that you feel
2: well done that you can own? It's, I'm at a difficult point with them because both my children have just left home or in the middle of leaving home, which is, I, I aspire to the mature, you know, it's, it's a process and everything you said, but there's a terrible end of exam. Your results come yes. as a parent at that point. Or do you a think way. those
1: are your results?
2: <laughs> Oh, oh, they're, I they're, they're fine. In parents. that case, I'm a brilliant
1: parent because my kid got great results. There you go. Now, I don't think that. Not I think the, she
2: got those. No, no, I don't, no, I don't much mean much. the academic ones. I mean oh. just, like, you mean there's nothing more a parent. I can do. Yeah. I feel like... Oh, yes, I, I mean, there there's is. There's a lot more I can do as a relationship with them as an adult, but... That's the best bit. Oh, there. There's just this feeling of, well, I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd been more. I wish I'd... Done, read aloud more. This awful but sort of what's the word? Regret you know, that. Yeah. And uh, none of us you read know, aloud. Can, none guessings. of us read aloud enough. You can we can all regret that. Oh, but, so it just it depends. When they're happy, I think I did a great job. When they're not happy, less so. But it's a difficult time because you can't help they but can't give yourself a bit be of an happy assessment. Happy
1: all the time. No one can be happy all the time. Anything that has the power to give us happiness has the power to make us sad. So if you get them a puppy and they're happy, then the old dog dies and they're sad.
0: But do you you think conversely that anything that has the power to make us sad also has within it the power to make us happy?
1: You'll have to be more specific. You'll have to give me an example. But yes, I suppose so. We're talking mathematically.
0: Yeah. I just wanted to end on an upbeat note. I was just trying desperately. Like, God, I've killed the puppy! Oh, no, no. I've, yeah, we've been left with dead dogs and... Close with a dead dog, then. Yeah. Close the dead dog, no, because I'm, we're I... too unhappy
1: to close with dead dog. We can't close the dead dog. There's always hope. We can end on a happy note, because there's always hope, because it, however bad... I'm doing quote marks. However bad we think we are, we can always say to our kids, my bad, I should have read read to you aloud more. And they went, no, I like my story tapes, don't worry about it.
0: Mm. You know, don't let us worry about it. Don't let us worry about it. Sadie Jones and Philippa Perry, you have been an utter delight. Thank you so, so much for coming on How to Fail. Thank you.